0: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 244, Weighing Game Weights. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. So here we are back for another episode action-packed episode of Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gaming that includes everything possible you could want to know or not want to know. And this week, we are talking about something you probably never talked about, but since we already did first-player tokens, this is now where we live.
1: (laughs) We're working our way down the list of obscure topics that nobody asked for, but
0: hopefully everybody wants. So if you want to be a big hit at parties, I don't know what parties, but if you want to be a big hit at some parties, somewhere out there, this episode's absolutely for you. We are talking about one of the topics that most people talk about, but don't typically talk about what they're talking about, so <laughs> to speak.
1: Yeah, that, that I, I, I follow that.
0: All right. Nice. Nice. So we're talking about weighing gain weight so oftentimes people say a game is heavy a game is light uh even sometimes a game is crunchy and sometimes you just let those things go by and think the person's having an aneurysm and then other times you think maybe they're onto something so for this feature you will be talking about one of these really interesting aspects about board gaming but before we get into all of that very esoteric stuff anthony bga is doing a lot of really interesting things that uh are outside the mainstream especially if for board game podcast we do a little thing in which when we get money for our patreon account instead of buying new equipment and new technology and going places like essen we give it back to the listeners is, is that actually correct am, am i getting that right yeah,
1: yeah, that's we're crazy like that. We don't, wow, we don't, we don't take the money. We don't, we don't profit off this. No, we are, we want you guys to have fun. And the best way to have fun is with games. So we, uh, we give away a game every week. And I try to be as clever as I can with the contests. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, generally, it's we have a lot of fun with it. So what do we have for this week? All right. So this week, it is a caption contest. I threw up a photo, and therefore, it is not particularly fun or interesting to describe on a podcast but you can head over to patreon.com bga and you can see the photo um it is a trio of very good sports that presumably work for asmodee with ridiculous looking things attached to their heads representing the four different uh types of resources in Catan. so uh, and it's just three of the four but it is the best photo i had from gen con it's one of my favorites <laughs> from the show and i was like guys Give me some captions. So we got actually a a fair number of responses this week. Thank you for everybody who wrote in, told us what you thought, made jokes at these poor people's expense, who hopefully were getting paid for their efforts. (laughs) Um, Martin, you are the winner. You had the best comment. We discussed this before the show. We liked yours the best. And I'll read it. But again, if you want to see the photo, head over there and check it out. It is, when even your game pieces try to run away to find a new game home. So... We have just everybody dissing on Catan. What are you going (laughs) to (laughs) do? That's
0: what happens when you reach the top. Everyone's gunning for you, so to speak. So if you would like to join in on Anthony's wacky contest, check us out at patreon.com slash BGA. Your support helps a great deal. And you gain an opportunity to win a fantastic game from our friends at Game Surplus. For everyone else, Please share the podcast with everyone else that makes a big difference for us. We love to be anonymous. We love to help you find the best games, but we want to help everybody out there. So share, share, whatever social media you use, Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, our YouTube account, or rate and give us stars on any of your different podcast listening devices. We would greatly appreciate that. All right, Anthony. So that's what's going on with BGA. Let's go on to our listeners. What's our
1: question of the week? Question of the week this week. What is a genre or style of game you've never played, but still want to try? So basically trying to figure out what types of games, the largest number of people have never gotten around to playing. And if you asked me to guess, in fact, I'm going to ask you to guess. Uh Oh, (laughs) what the top three of these would be. And I, I, I'm assuming you'll get at least one or two of them because it's it's not that surprising.
0: There's a couple to say the least. Uh, I guess I'm going to go with war game. (laughs) Oh, so close. How about miniatures gaming? No, no. Wow. That's really, really, really surprising. Let's go a little bit out of the mainstream. How about your just straight up party games? Somebody did mention party games. Yeah, that is on the list.
1: I was actually surprised here myself. And I th- I, th- I thought you'd get this because we talk about it all the time. But it is so far like we consider it such a fringe part of our hobby. 18xx. Sure. Yeah, I figured as much. It was the most commonly cited, followed by 4X, which is kind of in the same ballpark of the big, just heavy, sprawling games, which I guess could be, you know, the war games you mentioned. And then third on the list was RPGs, which I was surprised by. Uh, wow, bunch of people have never played RPGs, apparently. <laughs>
0: so Yeah, I guess I could see that. Even board gaming kind of has almost everything, but eighteen XX, as you mentioned, is really a different genre in and of itself, and RPGs the same. All right, I, I see that. I see a lot yeah. of cool stuff happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and for me, it is eighteen XX. That's like the one type of game I've never really gotten a chance to try out at like. The intended scope. I've played a couple 18XX ish games that are much shorter, but I've never played one of the big, long, four to six hour, sprawling economic epics that these games are. So, hoping to get a chance to do that soon. I know I'm in talks with a group to make that happen in the next month or so, but as of yet, that is still on my must-play list.
0: Yeah, I think for me, as far as genres is concerned, because I've seen this probably i don't know 10 plus years now is the miniatures games mm-hmm. and i don't mean like the typical flight plan games anthony i mean like the real like you have to build an army you have to paint an army you have to place guys out in this kind of terrain you need tape measuring <laughs> tools <Yeah. laughs> to be able to see if you have line of sight and if you could hit certain things and it's always intrigued me And I really like the idea of having my own type of army and putting that all together and even painting that up seems like a lot of fun. It's just tends to be, as you mentioned, one of those genres of gaming that it really is a different select group of people. It's not even like, oh, they're playing a different type of tabletop game like that is a whole genre in of itself.
1: I mean, I feel like if that's what you're doing, that's all you can do. It takes so much time. Like, you don't hear about professional Magic the Gathering players who also have board game night three nights a week. They just play Magic the Gathering all the time because you have to if you want to be that good. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about miniatures games, though, is I feel like a lot of people, that's how they got into board games in general because Mm -hmm. those have been around for so long. You know, I had a few friends back in the day who would go to the games workshop store at the mall and they'd pick up their stuff and bring it home and paint it. And that was well before that was before even Catan came out and introduced this whole new world of games to the, to the States.
0: I, I as you mentioned, I remember seeing that way back in the day as well. And, and somebody asking me, Hey, uh, would you ever play that? And I'm like, eh, uh, I don't know, maybe, I mean, it is really very much a, a different animal altogether, so to speak. And then like you mentioned a lifestyle game. So. Yeah, there are so many different genres of board gaming out there. We try to cover them all here. So we want to get all of that information out to you. So as Anthony is telling us here, our Facebook and Twitter account talks about the question of the day. So we really would love you to jump on there. Let us know your information so that we can share that with everybody else. All right, Anthony, so that's what's going on with our listeners. Let's get on to our acquisition disorders. What do you have up for us this week?
1: All right. I have the newest deluxified game from Tasty Minstrel. And I feel like every one of these they put up makes it to my acquisition disorders. I don't buy many of them just because they are decently expensive. They're big, they're sprawling. And not every game really hits that particular spot that I'm really interested in. This one, though, I'm, I'm really on the fence about, and it's Emperor's Choice. So this is a Hisashi Hayashi game. Uh, Hisashi Hayashi is probably the most prolific Japanese game designer right now. He has a bunch of stuff. Yokohama is probably one of his biggest games, but just dozens of other games as well. Every year or so, you, you see another big one coming over. And so this is the newest one coming to the States via Tasty Minstrel via deluxifying on Kickstarter. And it is a auction bidding set collection type of game. It's about the Chin Emperor in the third century BC. And you will be over the course of several different rounds trying to acquire victory points as one does by completing different achievements based on the policies set by the Emperor. So It comes like with these little mahjong tiles and this big sprawling board with all these different locations where you're like bidding and trying to move up and outdo each other. And the artwork looks fantastic as as one would expect for a game like this, especially like compared to the initial editions of this game that came out of Japan. The ratings of the people who have played it are not like glowing. They're good, but not glowing. But there aren't a lot of them. So it's it's hard because Tasty Minstrel, they go out, they find these games that don't have a lot of coverage, not a lot of people have played. And so there's not a lot of information about them. And then you know, you're spending a good chunk of money to get a nice fancy version of the game. I think this is a 100 bucks. And you don't really know what you're getting, even though the theme looks fantastic. And mechanically, it looks like something I'd enjoy. So I'm on the fence on this one. It looks really good. If you like Hayashi's games, if you like auction bidding type games, if you like like this this period of you know Chinese history, then this is definitely one you should check out because those are the things that attracted me to it and have me on the fence about it. Uh, and yeah, I if nothing else, I'm hoping someone I know <laughs> picks it up so I get a chance to play it next year sometime.
0: Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no? uh, you know, look, th- this is, I mean, this continues to be another challenge where you take what typically is an average to above average game, and then you throw everything at it as far as the deluxifying version is concerned. And it, what, what was maybe a $30 game is now a hundred dollar game. And again, not that you and I and everybody else listening hasn't upgraded their game or components or sleeved their game on some level, but I got to feel like at some point this this has got to stop. I don't know. I mean, uh, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, I will say it is a little frustrating because, yeah, this is a yeah. hundred bucks, right? Which is kind of what everybody's charging for yeah. everything these days. It just is what it is. But if you go back to... Yokohama Deluxe, which was three years ago to be fair, but that's like the other big one that they did. Hayashi, that was 60 bucks. You got all that fancy stuff for just mm-hmm. $60. So they've increased the price on this by like 65%. And then I'm not saying it's comparable because this one has some crazy number of like 150 mahjong tiles and the metal coins and all these different pieces and, and bits, but I feel like the cost of deluxifying has almost doubled in the last three years. And that's making it really, really difficult for me to go in on it. And, yeah, And uh,
0: I think and I'm going to talk about this in a second, because this is also my acquisition disorder this week, which is Fresco mega box. Now I think this is one of the very few games that you and I strongly disagree on. And we played mm-hmm. this quite some time ago. I actually have the big box edition of the game and it's, one of my, I wouldn't say top games or favorite games, but it's, it's a solid game for me. It's it's definitely up there. I know not so much for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I've played it twice. The first time
1: I played it with you and da- Daniel, I didn't uh-huh. like it at all. I think I initial review, I gave it a dodge, possibly bordering lower. I really disliked it. I played it again since with like one or two modules in it, and it was fine. I don't know that it's that much better than my original mm-hmm. impression. So like I saw this pop up and I'm like, Yeah, I'm good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so now I'm going to just let me briefly mention what Fresco is if you're not familiar with it. Fresco is a game from Queen Games. Now, Queen Games is known for their big box games where they have all these what they call Queenies, these little small modular kind of expansions that you can add to the game that maybe adds 15 minutes to the game. And uh, sometimes Queen is good enough to actually tell you how much more time it will actually add to the game, which is honestly fantastic. And fresco basically is about painting a fresco. So you're talking about the Renaissance and you have this wondrous fr- fresco up there and you and your, comp- your uh, opponents are competing to paint and score as many victory points as possible. So the main mechanic here is you're picking up paint, you are mixing it up, you are picking up some additional things here and there and you're running over to paint sections of the fresco as i mentioned the modulars add a whole bunch of other things to the game which are too numerous to mention seriously they're too numerous to mention so it's a fine game it's been on sale multiple times the big box has been on sale multiple times so the mega box here has four new modules including the card game and the dice game version that are included here and when and I can't imagine how big this box is going to be because I have the big box and it's impossible to bring to game night just because it's so damn big. So the mega box, and there is a number of different opportunities to back this app, but if you do want everything and if you are going to back it, I can't imagine why you would not back it with everything because at some point this needs to stop. (laughs) So you might as well back (laughs) it once and get everything instead of having multiple boxes on the shelf. So, I don't know if you got a chance to see this directly, Anthony, but uh, do you have any idea how much the ultimate edition of this happens to be?
1: I was on mute while you were talking and I happened to look it up and I almost spat out my
0: dress. So, Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) What are they doing? So there is a gold edition and then there is a diamond edition and there is an early bird that is still somewhat possibly available based upon the time that you listen to this broadcast. So, I don't know. Let's say you don't get the early birds, because it's highly possible that other people do in the meantime. So, for the Diamond Edition, that's not an early bird, that has everything, it's going to cost you $200 for for Fresco. (laughs)
1: $200 for Fresco. I'm so sad. I'm so sad on the inside. This is not a... mm. Okay, I mean I'm not the right person to judge the the cost of this particular game, but
0: I'll judge it cuz I I like the game quite a bit and it's one of my kind of I wouldn't say like, again, not my favorite game of all times, but it's 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 up there for me and that's kind of insane. But I I think that mm. we have been doing this podcast for over 6 years and things have obviously changed over 6 years. Kickstarter especially has changed things, but over what, what would you say, Anthony, two years or maybe less than two years, a year and a half, or maybe, yeah, maybe about a year and a half. The prices, as you mentioned, jumped dramatically. Yeah. I mean,
1: I backed the Alhambra Megabox all in everything Super Edition, and it was 120, I think, which I felt crazy about. That's then crazy. Yeah. For a game I play a lot and my family loves. And now the same thing for a different game is like $75 more. I like, mean, come on. Yeah.
0: So and you should remember, too, Queen Games does have this oddity of which every once in a while they will just dump their games on on uh, Amazon for super, super cheap. And so it's you could possibly pick up the base game for, I don't know, 20, 30 dollars or even less. Uh, So, yeah. So two big Kickstarters, two average good games that we talked about here if you're interested and if you cannot pick up the original version of this i think you and i would say like you know the original version is fine if you happen to want the all-in super fancy version both of these have super upgrade components these things are available huh uh, uh. uh to, just don't support it guys uh, uh. don't do it <laughs> So will keep charging us this much if we keep buying it Uh, (laughs) and that's why there are acquisition (laughs) disorders heavy emphasis on disorders all right anthony so that's what we hope to get to the table Once we hit the lottery, let's talk about the games that did hit the table because we did not hit the lottery. So therefore, we had to play the games that our friends brought to game night.
1: Yes, (laughs) that's actually exactly what happened. So for me, it was Paladins of the West Kingdom. This is the newest from Shem Phillips, Garpill Games. And I guess this is via Renegade because they publish all these now. This was on Kickstarter at some point. I didn't back it. A friend of mine did and I got a chance to play it. So thank you, Keith, for teaching the game. This is, I think, the fifth in a series of worker placement games from Shem Phillips with the same artwork, same kind of style. Um, This one in particular is the second in the West Kingdom series after Architects of the West Kingdom, which I liked quite a bit. But it grew stale fairly quickly because it didn't have a lot of variability to the play. This particular game has all sorts of variability. There are systems on systems. So It looks sprawling, it has a bunch of boards, it has a lot of cards, it has a lot of mechanics, but how does it all work together? And does it all work together? I guess is the main question a lot of people have. Basic idea of the game is you have a selection of different types of workers. I'm not gonna tell you what they are because I don't remember. They are colored blue, purple, white, green, red, and black, I think. And so they correspond to different types of tracks like red is for attacking and black is for the clerics and green is for I don't know, hunting or something. <laughs> I don't remember. It's all, they are all shaped the same and they're just different colors. You also have your own personal board on which you have a bunch of buildings and people, and you will take actions that will allow you to move those buildings off of spaces and get you benefits and bonuses. You have a track on the side of your personal board where you measure your faith and your military strength and your blue token, whatever that's called. I think like, I don't remember. It doesn't matter. It These just correspond to different actions you're going to take. Like you need to have certain levels of strength in each of these three areas to take certain actions. The actions you take will cause you to gain strength in one of them. So they kind of all cycle together. So like if you Place out one of your clerics onto the map. It will help you to increase your blue track, and your blue track will help you to build more of the wall. And the building the wall will help you to increase your military strength to attack these, you know, invaders that are coming in. So they kind of all cycle together. Um, there are six of those main things you can do. So there's, you know, placing out your your monks and trying to convert the countryside. There's the garrisons to help you build up your military strength. There's the wall on your personal board. Um, There's an absolution where you can move these little pots over and gain benefits from that. There's the attacking where you can just attack these cards that are out and get benefits from taking those back. And then there is converting people, which take those same cards and tuck them under your board. And they give you like ongoing end of game scoring abilities. So the goal of the game is to do all of these things as efficiently as possible. Um there's a few twists to it of course. You start each round with a paladin card, which is a some unique ability that breaks the rules a little bit, gives you two workers and gives you like a temporary buff in two or one in some cases of those three tracks on the left I mentioned. There's a deck of those, you'll draw three, pick one, and that'll be your paladin for the round. So, it's kind of a cool like asymmetry that comes in every single round. And the more you get to know the game, I feel like the better you'll be able to choose which of these cards you're going to use. There's also these variable um, endgame scoring conditions that show up on the main board. Uh, So those will come out over the course of several rounds and kind of tell you which things are going to score. So you can have to focus your efforts there, plus like additional worker placement spots that show up. At the beginning of every round as well, these cards are going to come out with four additional workers on them and you will draft them with all the players. So you will get the two that are on your paladin plus four more from the card that you draft from the central space. So you're always going to have six to start. And then at the end of any round, you can hold over up to three. So you could have up to nine to start any one round. And that's roughly kind of the flow and functionality of the game here. You're going to pick up, people you convert you're going to build walls you're going to get townsfolk from actions you take you are going to take on um, suspicion cards to generate money but then if you are, have the most of those suspicion cards you're going to generate debt which is a whole bunch of negative points you have to manage that which should be familiar if you played architects so if you can't tell there's a lot of systems in this game like if you played architects and you're like Ooh, okay the next one this is you know just layers upon layers added to that almost but i think it's a much better game for a few reasons one it gives you many more options to to work with you have your own personal board so while there are things you're going to race for you know there's a central board where you're placing out your garrisons and your clerics and stuff and those spaces fill up and then the townsfolk that you draft those go away the central worker placement actions of are communal. Um, how many of these suspicion cards you have can impact other people. All those things matter, right? But at the end of the day, you can always take whatever actions you want cuz they're your personal board, right? You can upgrade certain actions to make them less expensive over the course of the game. You can try to build out your wall and and you know, get an engine that way, build out your end game scoring and an engine that way. You get to decide how you build your engine. It's not dependent on what's happening on the central board where, you know, your plans can get frustrated very easily. I like that a lot. I feel like there was a lot of different paths I could have taken. And in the course of the game, I could see where I took the wrong path and where the person who won took the right path and how to combo these things together and create a chain and all those things. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't... All of Shem Phillips' games, they feel really clever and interesting. And I feel like he comes at them with, I'm going to make a worker placement game, but different. And they generally are that, right? They are worker placement games, but somehow different. This one feels a little bit more... At the same time, like it's evolved to a certain degree, but also is a little bit bloated as a result. I don't know how to describe it. I still like it a lot. There's just a lot of things going on, right? So it took a little bit of time to kind of just wrap my head around all these different mechanics when at the end of the day, all it is is worker placement. You're not doing a bunch of creative things. There are certain aspects that are random that stink. You know, when you take those suspicion cards, those are bad for you but you might just take them on purpose to get money. They could have zero on them. That stinks, you know? And you just took that thing for no reason and it's gonna hurt you. The draft of the cards at the beginning can be really punishing if you go last and you only have two cards to choose from. Uh, it could be, it could make you take suspicion you don't want. It could leave you with colors you can't use, especially at the end of the game. It's really brutal. So those are things that still rub me the wrong way and just kind of remind me of some of the issues I've had in his other games. But overall, this is probably the most fun I've had with any of his games. And I look forward to playing it again several times, ideally, because I just want to wrap my head around it more fully. So I'm going to give this one a strong play. I had a lot of fun with it. I think there are certainly some issues there that could be polished up with, I don't know, development of some kind. This is, again, a Kickstarter self-published game. But I think it's the best game he's put out thus far, at least with this kind of system. So that is Paladins of the West Kingdom.
0: Yeah, I got a chance to play this as well. And it was, as you mentioned, it was another game that I did not back myself. Someone did back it. I had played Architects of the West Kingdom and thought it was okay. It was quick. So it actually got a lot of table time with my game group because we could pretty much blow through it so quickly that it was never really particularly an issue. But it was always one of those games where you never really felt like at least for me, I never really felt like I was really enjoying the game. Like, Oh, there's some really cool elements here, picking up the different workers to give you special abilities and building the buildings and building the, the uh, cathedral, so to speak. <clears throat> but honestly, putting together the, the, the cast of characters to help you do things always took way too long and was way too expensive. And building the buildings, which was a path to victory typically was never worth your time although for me personally it was the most fun element of the game and since the building track was also you know for the church as well as the buildings that went up pretty quick so you never really again for me you never i never really felt like i did enough in that original game to say that i enjoyed it like i played it ah yeah this is this is fine this is kind of fun i, I get it it just never really felt Done perfectly or done well enough for me to sit down and want to play that or pick the game up. Paladins of the West Kingdom. This version is clearly a better version. I don't think that anyone could say otherwise. I mean, I think it's objectively true that it takes everything from Architects. I mean, it's this is almost the same game, right? You would agree, right? So many of the sim- similar elements to it, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it takes away the central mechanic that's different about
1: architects, like the the ability to like arrest each yeah. other, you know, take people, workers out of the game. That's like the core mechanic of architects. And the reason that game is so interesting, that's not here. That's not what this is. Like, you don't interact with each other's workers at all. In fact, they're not your workers. You recruit them every round and then they go away. But the core idea is some of the cards are the same. Like the the debt cards are identical, you know, and And some of the townsfolk, identical. So yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a lot of similarities.
0: And the architect game, I mean, honestly, felt a little silly, if not stupid. I get it. You put one worker down there, you get one piece of wood, you put two workers down there, you get two pieces, you know, like, I I, I get it. I, I just felt that game, it just felt like you were doing, in some cases, more of an activity than was necessary for actually the gameplay. Let's go back to Paladins. Paladins feels like, from start to finish, a much better game, a lot more refined, having your own player board lets you do a lot more to it. There's, as you mentioned, Anthony, there's a lot of different paths to victory, although some paths are more beneficial than others. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that needs to be kept in mind. The only thing I will say about Paladins, well, two things I'll say about Paladins that kind of bug me a little bit. First is, there is, as you mentioned, a lot of luck involved as far as when are you selecting the meeples to begin with? Because you got the good stuff or you didn't get the good stuff. Mm -hmm. And the cards that you draw, the paladins you draw, you got a good hand of three or you did not. And that was a little frustrating because somebody else happened to get the one that lets him kind of build. So he's at a, you know, an early start where you got some other actions that you really can't do. Like, oh, maybe you could do attack, but there's nothing really there for you to attack at this point based on strength or what you know position you happen to be in so i felt that that was kind of arbitrary it just kind of felt like luck you know or that main board where cards flip over like oh you can get these extra characters but i'm not the first player he is so he will get that bonus before i do i'll eventually have an opportunity to get that but right now early on that's a big bonus so It felt like those kind of game mechanics that came into play were so arbitrary and so random that it was a little annoying. And then finally, I guess there is an aspect as far as this whole crusading element to it, the conversion element to it. You're basically converting and killing all of these people of color from the Middle East, which once again is somewhat thematic for the game, but it also was a little odd that here was my handful of all these white dudes and here was a uh, pretty long display of uh, brown uh, men and women uh, that I was converting or killing throughout the game. So that, that was a little bit of an oddity there, but overall it is a better game than architects. I guess if you have to play the one paladins is better. Although, as I mentioned, there are some problematic elements for me. It probably gets a a very, very light dodge just because I've played Architects so much that while Paladins is a mechanically better game, I feel like I've seen so much of it previously that I'm kind of burnt out from this particular little genre of games.
1: That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play Architects a ton. Um, but I could see if you played that a lot, this is Played that a lot. Yeah. More worker placement on steroids, right?
0: Yeah. And it's just, you know, a lot of the similar elements, which are not bad. And I guess, as, again, as I said, I think this is a, uh, a much more refined uh, version to it. All right. So let me talk about a game that, again, I did not have the opportunity to pick up myself, but was a game that I was really looking forward to playing. This is Cowboy Bebop board game boogie. Now Cowboy Bebop, For those people out there who are not anime fans will probably have no idea what I'm talking about here, but Cowboy Bebop is a classic, famous, probably the most famous kind of adult, mature, and I mean that in a mentally adult and mature, not an explicit (laughs) adult and mature, but in a really philosophical, humanistic Uh, wondrous action and adventure and intrigue and a a wondrous, beautifully sad and integral story. I mean, like it's pretty much everything you could want out of the greatest movies of all time in a anime series. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not just a great anime. Cause I I feel like that's the indicator, right? It's not just a good anime. It's just a great television series. It's it's a great show. Yeah. You know, it's a good story
0: it It really is. and there's so many levels to it. You can go on YouTube and watch multiple think pieces about it and how they pull out certain elements. And I mean, there's just real big existential kind of questions there. And it's some of the best action in a TV series ever, as as you mentioned, Anthony, which is perfectly uh, said. So I was really excited about this because again, huge fan want to play this in board game, you know, format. And then I've heard it was produced by Jesco Games. (sighs) Now, Jesco Games has a lot of really cool IPs. In particular, if you are a board gaming Kickstarter fan, you may remember they had Mega Man, which had some fantastic miniatures and honestly was the beginning of the end of why you wanted to back that game because it was just fantastic miniatures. So, Cowboy Bebop. Now, again, if you've not seen the anime, basically it's about... These uh, bounty hunters who all have these really unique paths that are full of just challenging, problematic, sad and dangerous stories. And they've all come together, this ragtag kind of like Firefly crew. And they're just trying to make their way through the universe as all these different things are happening. And typically most episodes are based around trying to capture these bounties, these bad guys that are out there. So that's basically what the game happens to be here you will have an opportunity to choose one of the main characters. And here we're looking at four of the main characters. And there's also this really cute corgi dog, uh, Ayn, who plays somewhat of a minor role in the game and also, you know, a minor role in the show. You'll take one of the four characters. They'll have different story elements that you're trying to complete throughout the game. And each of the characters will have special abilities and also have a different number of cards that are based upon their particular ability everyone gets a similar hand of cards that are going to let them to you know battle or search out clues and such or hack and you'll have a different combination of those and then basically what the game is is you'll have those bounties that are out there that are going to give you money particularly so you want to go out and capture those bad guys how do you do that You got to get some clues. You have to go to the right location. And typically the main mechanic of the game is you will play cards from your small deck of cards. And you will deal with the situations and the tragedies that come up by playing these cards. So basically a lot of it is a very simple, this is what's required. You play those cards. And if you can't meet those conditions, you can ask for help. Because just like the show, this is a co-op. So the idea is to be able to deal with whatever your special conditions are from your unique players, because to complete those kind of missions are challenging and the bad guys pop up and all of the artwork is from the show. The components are pretty generic. They're kind of a big box store game kind of situation. Nothing particularly special here. There's no miniatures. There is no special coins. It's generally just a very basic game. So so if you happen to be a big fan of Cowboy Bebop, I am going to recommend this game as a dodge. And that really hurts a bit because, again, love the show. This game was as dull as can be. uh, And it's just matching symbols, which has really very little to do with the actual show. In theme or in atmosphere, if you are not a fan of Cowboy Bebop and do not intend to do so, but are looking for some quality gameplay here, uh, then I, I I have to say for you this is certainly, absolutely, positively a hard dodge. That's Cowboy Bebop board game boogie dodge, my friends, dodge and go watch the anime because it's far far better than this. That said. Sad, but not unexpected. So no, not at all. (laughs) Which is why I've never tracked it down, despite that being
1: one of my favorite shows of all time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was literally full asleep sleep playing this game. I'm just like, oh, so bad. All right, so that's everything that was hitting our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. So for a feature review this week, we are weighing game weights. So one of the very strange and interesting thing about board gaming especially hobby board gaming is that board game geek and by proxy so to speak board gamers typically talk about their games based upon a weight scale so bgg rates the games or has an opportunity for those games to be rated by board gamers as a light which would be a 1.0 to a 1.8 a medium to light, which is a 1.8 to 2.6, a medium, which is a 2.6 to 3.4, a medium heavy, 3.4 to 4.2, and a straight up heavy 4.2 to 5. Now, if you've listened to our podcast previously, Anthony and I have talked a lot about game weights. We've discussed a lot about game weights. We've also had a lot of conflict about how heavy is a game. So... I thought it would be a good time to actually talk about this and give you a sense of what we mean when we talk about the weight of games, the complexity that goes into board gaming. Correct, Anthony? Yeah, Yeah, I think it's worth talking about because, like you said, we
1: talk about this every single week, sometimes arguing about it. And there are certainly people out there who have no idea what we're talking about and others who just like flat out disagree with us. So it's probably good to, to level set and, you know. Lay out what this actually means, why we use it, how it's completely relative and subjective, but also why it's important
0: nonetheless. So Board Game Geek has some general information when they're talking about weight. They say right off from the bat, weight isn't clearly defined, but basically what they're talking about here is the complexity rating and and how the community rates a game as far as its difficulty is concerned. So the lower the number, the lighter weight it is, which typically means easier. And if it's a higher number, then it's more complex. But what do we mean when we say complex? Now, here's a couple of opportunities to take a look at this as far as questions are concerned by BoardGameGeek. So it will ask how complex slash thick is the rulebook? Now, this is something that Anthony and I have come across. If a game happens to have a very challenging rulebook to read through or try to figure out, It's always going to make the game feel a lot heavier than it is. Sometimes it's badly written or sometimes it's just very complex. How long does it take to play? Which, as we know, game nights, that tends to be a thing. So we might attribute weight to the length of a game. What proportion of time is spent thinking and planning instead of resolving actions? That's typically something I think about as far as how heavy a game happens to be. How many times in particular do you have to convert a resource until you eventually get points out of it? How hard and long do you have to think to improve your chances of winning? That's something we'll talk about probably in detail. How little luck is in the game, typically if it's a roll and move or something like that, or there's a lot of luck or randomness in a game. We will kind of typically, you know, cite that as a rationale why a game might be lighter because tends to be a lot more luck involved in that game. We might also talk about how much technical skills required, math, reading the head moves, is necessary to play the game well. Uh, We might also talk about how long does it take to learn the rules, how many times you need to play it in order to, quote unquote, get the game. So these are some of the questions that Board Game Geek posts out as far as how it gets a sense of how complex a board game may be. How about you, Anthony? Is there anything in particular? that you think about or a question that you kind of pose to a game trying to figure out how heavy it may be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think of it in one of two different ways. There's the the upfront complexity. So how hard is a game to learn, which is covered in a lot of those questions. And that that can be the rule book, that can be the number of things you do, that can be any number of different issues with the game that can just make it hard to wrap your head around. So like I think of like a game like Arkwright, which is a really high complexity rating uh, and weight rating on BGG, and that game has a decently wrong rulebook and it takes about an hour to learn, like just to teach the rules and walk through. and then like four or five hours to play, right? That's a heavy game and it will take several plays to wrap your head around it. But there are other games that feel heavy as well that maybe only have 10 page rule books you know, a lot of splatter games are fairly simple in execution, but they have a lot of depth to them. They like once you learn the rules, which maybe won't take more than 20 or 30 minutes, there's a lot of depth and complexity that emerges as you play. And the game's complexity and weight is almost dependent on who you're playing against and how many times you've played the game because you can start just pull more and more out of it and get more complex and more uh, create a more, robust approach to how you actually you know accomplish what the game's asking you to do so like those are the two areas like i look at so how long it takes to learn it and play it and succeed at it and how much stuff there is to do and then how long it takes to master that game right my favorite example is chess which i could teach that game to somebody in five minutes my son learned it when he was four or five a lot of kids do and it will take a lifetime to master. I've been playing chess for 30 years. I'm not any good at it, but <laughs> I've still been playing for 30 years. And then there, are, I would actually get destroyed by anybody who actually plays it regularly, right? That's that's a very deep look kind of complexity versus you know surface level.
0: Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier too, when we talk about complexity, it comes from a number of different measures. As you mentioned, rule book, learning, actually playing length of game and such. And as you mentioned with chess, A lot of these games are a minute to learn, a lifetime to master. So, yeah, if, for example, again, chess, right? So if you memorize a lot of the different movesets, you're in pretty good shape. But obviously you have to be able to employ them and and read them and such. So chess has a level of complexity that, for example, maybe Feast for Odin would be completely different, but would have similar complexity to it because... There are so many moving parts in that game and so many spaces and your your worker placement does so many other different things. So there's a different level of complexity involved in that game. Now, for me, one of the games or the key game that I kind of keep going back to when I talk about complexity in games is Agricola. Now, in particular, because Agricola does something very right, which is it's thematic in its gameplay. So when you play Agricola, even though, uh there's a lot of elements to it there's a lot of cards to it it thematically makes sense so you want to be able to score points based upon vegetables well you have to take the action to plow the field you have to take an action to plant the seeds and then based upon the harvest phase you have to harvest those vegetables and then if you were looking to feed your family so to speak then you need a way to be able to do that you could kind of feed them very simply Or maybe you want to bake bread or use some sort of other type of opportunity. So that has multiple steps that is required in order to take a something very simple or a basic element and then eventually convert it into victory points. So when I'm looking at games, I'm looking how long does it take to finally get to the goal, which is nine times out of 10 victory points or what you need or is required to win the game. So again, going back to your example, Anthony, chess, if you want to win a game of chess, you're talking about a large number of moves as far as in order to capture the uh, king in that game. So for me, that one goal does take a very long time. So I would designate chess as a heavy game, whereas as you mentioned, the rule book is fairly uh, simplistic as far as this piece does this, this piece does that, and you're there to capture the other pieces.
1: Yeah, yeah, the complexity comes out in responding to your opponent, which is really any abstract game. Mm -hmm. I mean, a good abstract game is emergent, right? It's not about how complex are the rules and how many different things can you possibly do? It's just about how do you react to certain situations? And then you get games like Twilight Imperium where people rate that game high, mid fours and call it a very heavy game. And it's really not that complicated. It just has a lot of stuff going on. So you have to keep a lot of things in your head. Sure. But actually, like, it really guides you very well in terms of what you should do and when you should do it. And I like to me, that game is not particularly complex, but other people disagree and rate it pretty highly. So it, there are those two very unique ways of looking at it.
0: All right. So that's everything for this week until next time. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all. I see at the table. Tower Network. Dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron,
1: but with better lip syncing. Find out more at DicetowerNetwork.com